Good morning. Thank you for coming out on the coldest morning of the year, probably the coldest morning of several years. And after you hear today's speaker, I'm sure you'll be glad that you did. My name is Anne Hostetler, and I'm the chair of the English department here at Goshen College. And I want to extend a special welcome to a group of Bethany Christian students and teachers who've joined us for this convocation. It's a pleasure to introduce to you our speaker today, David Griffith, who will talk to us on the subject of making art, making peace. David is a writer of faith dedicated to peace who comes from the Catholic tradition. Educated at Notre Dame and the University of Pittsburgh, he is currently teaching in South Bend at St. Mary's College. I first met David Griffith a year ago last November when Joe Lichty and I attended a conference entitled Art, Faith, and Social Justice at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. David presented a paper at the same session that we did, and when we heard his reflection on the American response to the photographs of Abu Ghraib, as well as his own personal meditations on the subject, we were both moved by David's fine writing and his engagement with the moral imagination. We thought, we've got to bring him to Goshen, so here he is. That talk is now available in David's brand new book, A Good War is Hard to Find, The Art of Violence in America just published by Soft Skull Press, a small publisher of innovative and cutting-edge writing. David has some copies of his book with him, and if you're interested, you can purchase one after the convo. He's also speaking to my creative writing class tonight, so um, if you don't have money now but you're interested, um, you can find me sometime before 9.30 tonight. <clears throat> one of the chapters in the book has just been accept excerpted in the Utney Reader, and others have appeared in Image, a Journal of Art and Religion, and Killing the Buddha, an online zine. Josh Tyson of Time Out Chicago calls A Good War is Hard to Find, a massively forceful piece of criticism that asks key questions about the state of our country's faith and humanity without the crutch of an agenda. It is no secret that we are bombarded with media images in our culture, but how do they come to inhabit our minds and shape, even subconsciously, our behaviors? David explores the ways in which the art of violence pervades our psyches in the tradition of such Catholic writers as Flannery O'Connor, who seek narratives of redemption in the profane, and whose story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, is echoed in the title of David's book. You will never watch either the Super Bowl or Pulp Fiction in just the same way again after experiencing David's approach to the imagery that pervades our lives. Although he was trained as a writer of fiction and has written at least one novel, David keeps finding stories in the world around us that absorb his imagination. Today, he will help us to see into the heart of things. Please join me in welcoming David Griffith. Hi, good morning. Um, thank you very much for coming out on such a just bitterly, bitterly, bitterly cold uh, morning. Cars were actually going off into the ditch in front of me on my way over from South Bend, so the fact that I got here is uh, uh, some amount of, uh, I, I guess, providence in and of itself. So um, I'm going to show you a, a few images real quick. Um, the book is about the Abu Ghraib prison scandal, and the scandal would not have been a scandal without the images that first appeared on 60 Minutes, um, and then were you know, gradually more and more were leaked out into the, into the internet so that all of us, or all of us that have internet connections, which uh, at this point is very few, or very few of us do not have internet connections, so I'm, I'm sure that you've seen uh, at least uh, a few of these before. So um, I just want to put these up here and then turn it off because I, 
I don't really um, feel like they need to be up longer than, than, uh, than a, few, a few seconds. So the book is arranged, um, my book is arranged in such a way that the text and the images are, are meant to collaborate and to uh, resonate with one another. So the first image you see is a, a very pixelated image of uh, the prison guard, Charles Grainer, um, standing before a, a detainee with a, uh, a sandbag over his head. Yeah, and you see in a, in a cruciform pose, which is very intentional on the part of the, the designer of the book. Uh, here's another um, of a, a guard dog uh, being used as, as a fear tactic uh, toward a, a detainee. Um, these are, are some of the more difficult images. The one on the left being uh, two men being made to pantomime uh, some amount of, of, of sexual activity. And on the right, uh, another detainee be, again being uh, menaced by uh, guard dogs. And the last, uh, a man uh, who's being uh, restrained on the ground. Um, I mean, seeing them again is very difficult for me, uh, considering that a, a, a book, by its very nature, has covers and you can close it. And so most of the time it stays closed uh, in a box um, underneath my desk. And uh, you know, I bring it out if someone wants to buy a copy. Um, so that, that was one of the, the things that, about having images in a book that, that really appealed to me, is that you could open it and you can shut it and you could, you could be shut of it. Um, but the other thing that, was, that really compelled me about um, when the designer, a man named Brett Yasko, who is a designer who lives in Pittsburgh, approached me about a book that would be a collaboration between image and text, was that it would be uh, a kind of artifact of a time and place, uh, a time and place when I think it's incumbent upon all of us to um, think more carefully about the way images uh, affect us and the way that they might um, come into our lives and, and affect our ideo ideological attitudes toward war and toward violence. So I just wanted to read a brief uh, intro here and then uh, uh, one of the briefest chapters of the book. So the title of this morning's talk is Making Art, Making Peace. And as you might imagine, I want to claim that there can be a relationship between these two difficult processes because they are both, after all, processes endeavors that require years of study and work, even going so far as to apprentice yourself to a master, someone who is recognized as a leader in their chosen field. And I've apprenticed myself to a few writers in my time who are very generous, uh, always willing to talk with me about problems that I might be having. And as a concerned, concerned citizen and Christian who believes that we are all called to sow peace instead of strife, to forgive instead of harboring resentment and call for revenge, I have tried to apprentice, apprentice myself as best I could to Jesus Christ. Perhaps this sounds like yet another warmed over way of expressing what it means to be Christian, but at the moment it strikes me as a productive way of thinking of the Christian's relationship to Christ when it comes to bringing about peace. Christ says in Matthew 11:30, my yoke is easy, my burden light. And I think that this verse helps me to better understand my own interest in the making of art to advocate for peace. When I first saw the Abu Ghraib photos, they weighed heavily on my conscience. I wish that I'd never seen them, really. I wish that I could go in and erase them from my memory. But the more research I did about the incident, the more I realized that the men and women involved in, the committing, in committing these atrocities were nothing like me. They were deranged, part of a tiny part of the population that takes pleasure in participating in such degradation. And I reassured myself that such behavior was not right, widespread, but just the case of a few quote-unquote bad apples, which was a term that was used quite a bit. 
However, soon new reports surfaced concerning the abuse and murder of detainees at an airbase in Afghanistan, and then evidence of maltreatment at the Special American Military Prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. These reports opened my eyes and led me to ask what all these events had in common. What was the common denominator? My answer, after much research and personal reflection, is that the abuse seen in Iraq and Afghanistan and in Cuba is the result of two fundamental human flaws, a hatred of those who we perceive to be utterly different from ourselves and a desire to prove ourselves greater than those same people, flaws that each one of us are prone to. What was so eye-opening about the scandal was that, the people of, was that people of good conscience saw the photographs and reasoned that the detainees being abused must have done something wrong to deserve the treatment. Such a reaction makes us permissive of such behavior, and therefore we too become complicit. We condone it, albeit from a distance. Such an attitude toward atrocious photographs is easy, requiring no examination of our own conscience, no serious consideration of what purpose the violence serves. As Simone Weil says in her famous essay, The Iliad or the Poem of Force, the force of violence turns men to stone, into mere objects, and in so doing images, and as such, images such as those from Abu Ghraib are in a way pornographic, especially given that the photos were used both as trophies of war and blackmail material. In the end, I wanted this book to stand as an artifact of one person coming to terms with their conscience, to have readers confront the images along with me, images we usually turn away from and do not think critically about. The premise of this book is that we must consider the ways that we look at images of violence and war and ask deep and probing questions about what they tell us about our nature, about the nature of human, excuse me, about the nature of war and of humans. And my sense is that by expressing our experiences with violent images, whether they be in film, television, literature, or first-hand experience, we can create a space for others to reflect and meditate on their experiences. The verse from Matthew is more to the point. My yoke is easy, my burden light. Christ's suffering provides us with the grace to endure the burden of worldly cruelty and to see that such acts are rooted in pride and fear, therefore helping us to root it out when we find it in our presence. And I'll just read a brief excerpt from the book. This is uh, the third chapter of the book, and it's uh, called Pictures of the Floating World on the Occasion of the 60th Anniversary of the Bombing of Hiroshima in Three Parts. And it begins with an epigraph from John Hersey's book, uh, Hiroshima, which is a journalistic account of, uh, of the bombing told through the, the point of view of, of several survivors. And the, the epigraph is, excuse me for having no burden like yours. And this, the Reverend Mr. Kiyoshi Tanamoto uh, says this as he passes through the rubble. When I was in the fifth grade, I began going to the library with my dad every Sunday. I remember one particular Sunday browsing the young adult section in a funky little corner near the LP record listening stations where homeless men shared headphones and listened to jazz, surrounded by their shopping bags full of, full of clothing. Browsing a spinner rack jammed with books, I came upon a worn-out paperback with the word Hiroshima in bold letters, on the, uh, bold letters across the cover and a photograph of a gigantic mushroom cloud. I doubt that I knew the term mushroom cloud then, but I recognized the towering gray cloud from somewhere. TV? A comic book? But to be sure, the word and the image together held no associations for me. 
The austerity of the cover made it seem important, as though this one explosion was different from all the others. I was about 11 years old, and I liked the idea of being able to read young adult books. So I sat down there near the homeless men bopping their heads to Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk, music for the atomic age, and began reading. Hersey's prose was direct, focusing on the banal particulars of a morning in Hiroshima, Japan. He wrote with an almost holy reverence for the events of that morning, careful to chronicle the last incredulous moments before the bomb detonated in a flash of molten hot light. I thought, where have I been? This event seemed much too important for me not to have known about it. Never before had I read a book that described the ravages of war so explicitly. The skin of people's hands sloughed off in glove-like pieces. A woman's naked torso was emblazoned with the flowered pattern of the kimono she was wearing when the intense heat and light irradiated her. It was not the complete flattening of the city that unhinged me, but the way the survivors' bodies, the elderly, young mothers, young children, all bore the burns of invisible radiation and tremendous heat. Never had I read a book shot through with so much guilt. Excuse me for having no burden like yours, the Reverend Mr. Kiyoshi Tanimoto says to the dazed and bleeding people while hurrying through the smoke and dust-darkened streets, knowing that he can do nothing to save them. I couldn't get my mind around the idea of feeling such deep guilt simply for having lived. Not long after reading the book, I watched a documentary on PBS about the bombing. By this time, I'd grown obsessed with the event, and I recall even being excited as I sat there on the couch waiting for it to begin. My dad watched it with me, making it seem like a manly thing we were doing, cultivating a deep and thorough knowledge of world events and history. We were probably munching popcorn, something we always do when watching TV. Like Hersey's book, the documentary focused on brutal and heartbreaking eyewitness accounts. The narrator told of a woman and infant lying on the ground near the Hiroshima River. After some time, the mother died, but the infant continued to nurse at her breast. An illustration accompanied the narration of this devastating story. Watching the infant crawl up on its mother's limp body, the hair stood up on the back of my neck, and I felt a deep twinge of horror. An old wrinkled woman, just a teenager when the bomb dropped, told of how her mother had been completely vaporized by the bomb blast as she sat on the steps of the Hiroshima bank, waiting for it to open. She held up a photo to the camera, a dark spot on the steps where her mother's body had left a shadow. Two. Almost 20 years after my first read of Hiroshima, on the 60th anniversary of the blast, the news coverage I witnessed on the major networks consisted of little more than brief footage of memorial ceremonies in Japan. On NBC, there was no mention of the number of Japanese deaths. Instead, an interview with a crew member of the Enola Gay, the plane that, that dropped the bomb, who expressed no regret after half a century. It felt like a good time to reread Hersey's book, but for some reason my copy was missing. I drove to the library, but their copies were either checked out or missing too, so I went looking for the original issue of the New Yorker magazine, where the entire book had first been published on August 31st, 1946. I went, I went down into the basement where the periodical holdings are squeezed into movable shelves, and I cranked back several shelves and walked between the futuristic units, better suited for brushed aluminum cylinders containing double helixes than the faded bindings of magazines. I found the correct volume, seven inches thick, lugged it out of the stacks, and sat down at a table. Inside the front cover, written in tight cursive with a pencil, was a note, missing, volume 22, issue 29. I flipped through the huge fan of brittle, musty pages, <clears throat> past ads for hair tonic and phonographs, knowing the missing issue 
was probably exactly the one I was looking for. But then there it was, August 31st, 1946, a year and 25 days after Little Boy detonated 500 meters above the center of Hiroshima, killing 140,000 people, some vaporized instantaneously. But the cover wasn't what I had expected. It was a colorful painting, an aerial view of hundreds of people basking on blankets in the summer sun of Central Park, New York City. Inside, I was surprised to see the familiar headings, goings on about town, in the same font that you'll see in a New Yorker magazine now. I love reading through the movie listings and the art openings, but my favorite is the jazz column. I always check to see who's, who's playing at the Village Vanguard. It's a dream of mine to see a show at the Vanguard before I die. Now playing, the big sleep with gunfire and tough talk, notorious, and the postman always rings twice. On the stage, Harvey with music, Ethel Merman in Annie Get Your, in Annie Get Your Gun, Carousel by Mr. Roger and Mr. Hammerstein, Oklahoma, Buddy Ebsen in Showboat, at the spotlight, Coleman Hawkins and Roy Eldridge's bands, and Billie Holiday at the downbeat, a place the writer cautions resembles a subway car in size. Surrounding the tiny printed entertainment listings, there are ads, Rise and Shine in Randoms by Stetson, Ford V8 engines, glistening satin stripes, pale pink or blue on rustling black rayon taffeta dresses. I forgot for a moment what I'd come looking for. I fantasized about what I would give to have seen Billie Holiday in that tiny, smoky club singing. Finally, I turned the page, eager to set eyes on the original article as it would have been seen by readers 60 years ago. But what I saw was the cover of the next issue, September 7, 1946. Someone had razored out the entire issue, all 68 pages of what has been called the greatest magazine article of all time. The reference librarians were very sorry. It wasn't available on microfiche either, and special collections didn't have a copy, so I drove over to the small women's college a mile away, and there in the basement library, I found it. I took a deep breath and read it through, all 68 pages, looking for any differences between it and the book published soon after that lay on the table in front of me. The first seven pages are column after column through to a page of text, and then after, the ads start. Snooperscope sees at night with invisible light. Below, there is an inset picture of a soldier aiming a rifle with a telescopic sight affixed. The ad continues. Here, our infrared telescope is mounted on a carbine. The combination was aptly called sniperscope, for it enabled a soldier in total darkness to hit a target the size of a man at 75 yards. 30% of the Japanese casualties during the first three weeks of the Okinawa campaign were attributed by the army to this amazing sniperscope. Next came an ad for Aqua Velva, starring men in plaid jackets wearing derbies at the horse track. Then an ad for Vat 69 Scotch Whiskey, and then Permalift, the lift that never lets you down. I finished reading and drove home. As I drove, I found myself thinking more about the ads for Aqua Velva and Scotch, and how much I would like to have seen Billie Holiday sing in that little jazz club than the fate of the citizens of Hiroshima. I imagined the entire scenario reeking of aqua velva, listening to Billie Holiday sing her signature tune, Strange Fruit. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from poplar trees, pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolias sweet and fresh, then the, the sudden smell of burning flesh. The fantasy blotted Hiroshima from my mind, if only briefly, 
as I soon remembered the landscape that Miss Sasaki took in almost a month after the blast. It was her first glimpse of the destruction since she had spent the previous <clears throat> days in the hospital with an infected leg. In John Hersey's words, even though the wreckage had been described to her and though she was still in pain, the sight horrified and amazed her. There was something she noticed about it that particularly gave her the creeps. Over everything, up through the wreckage of the city, in gutters, along the riverbanks, tangled among tiles and tin roofing, climbing on charred tree trunks, was a blanket of fresh, vivid, lush, optimistic green. The verdancy rose even from the foundations of ruined houses. Weeds hid the ashes and wild weeds already hid the ashes and wildflowers were in bloom among the city's bones. The bomb had not left underground organs of plants intact. It had stimulated them. Three. The last section. The Saturday after Thanksgiving, looking at Japanese Yukio paintings in the Art Institute of Chicago with my friend Brandon, we talk about writing. We read a placard on the wall that explains Yukio means pictures of the floating world, although it is alternately translated sorrowful world. Simple images of snowy mountain passes and young women in scarlet kimonos passing over bridges remind Brandon of the poet William Carlos Williams' mantra, no ideas but in things. Brandon is a poet, and he wants to write poetry that is arresting, as arresting as these small paintings. The more particulars, the more, the more lived in a, wheel, a world feels, I tell him, pointing to a tree heavy with snow behind the, glass, behind the glass. The more it seems real, he says, the more possibilities, I say. One image, or perhaps a cluster, causes us to see that the world is more vast and mysterious than we had imagined. I remind him of the previous morning, the red and blue box kite that we saw stuck up in a tree on the farm where we, together with my wife Jessica, cut down a Christmas tree. This, that is the kind of particular that can make a story, I say, pointing. Not by itself, though, he says. No, not by itself, but the more images like those you have, on our way back to the city from the Christmas tree farm, we stopped to gawk at butchered hogs that had been split open and hung like crucifixions on the lawn of a farmhouse. Four hog heads sat in a row in the foreground, staring dumbly at us. Jessica rolled down the window and snapped a picture. For some reason, I was nervous, as though this was insensitive, as though the person who did the butchering was going to come out and be upset with us. But when, he looked, when we looked and saw the butchered hogs, the four heads, so perfect in their composition, we saw a picture. Could this be real? A picture was needed for proof, after all, but also because it was strangely beautiful. So that's what a butchered hog looks like, something we knew happened somewhere, but we gaped at the tableau like the three naive city dwellers we were. The butchered hogs seemed like the still center of the world. As we drove home, the top of the Christmas tree poking into the front seat by the gear shift, I thought of the day's images the picture I took of my pregnant wife in front of our first Christmas tree before we cut it down, the kite in the tree, the slaughtered hogs, the images building one on the next, the previous giving away to the most recent, so that what I will remember most about this day, our first Christmas as a married couple, is that picture of the butchered hogs and the nervousness I felt sitting there, waiting for Jess to snap the picture. This is not so much irony as it is the beauty of living, each new particular stuns us with its newness, irrevocably changing the complexion of the day, which, I realize, is easy for me to say, living here in Indiana, 
far from any war zone. Yoshido Masasuchi, a cameraman who took some of the first photos of the aftermath of Hiroshima, said upon revisiting the spot where he first encountered injured civilians, quote, the children had all suffered burns and skin was hanging from them like rags. It was cruel to photograph them and at first I couldn't bring myself to do it. I think the first shot took me 30 minutes and the skin was just hanging from them and I thought, this is not clothing, it's skin. Such a realization is devastating. Realizing the factuality of the moment, this is real, this is happening right in front of me. Such moments, an infant nursing at a dead mother's breast, four hogheads in a neat row on the side of a country road, children with their skin hanging from their bodies, have the power to obliterate all other circumstances of the day and those leading up to it. Thank you. I think after something like that, we have like a minute, it looks like. Uh, after something like that, we need a little bit of a, you know, just, so if everybody just wants to, you know, let out a big, you know, deep breath, and I know that I need that too. Um, but I would really encourage you, if you're interested, to um, check out, I, I run a blog at uh, www.goodwar.blogspot.com, and if you're interested in seeing more images from the book or reading excerpts from the book, that you can look at it there, um, which is a safer place to look at it than say, having it in your hands sometimes, because so you can just turn it off if you want. Um, but thank you so much for coming out on such a bitterly cold evening, or morning, and I look forward to talking with some of you, if you like. Thanks. <laughs>